Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying a, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, Love at, at first, first listen. listen. We're older, we're wiser, and we're podcasting through a new decade of our lives. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. And getting to the heart of our stories. We're going places we've never gone before, and we're bringing you along with us. With new segments, correspondence, and a brand new sound. Season 9 is kicking off with an intimate interview with Grammy Award-winning singer-songwriter Natalia Laforcade. What's giving you hope right now? Well, when I see See what music does to people. It gives me a lot of hope. If you liked Locatora before, you're going to love Season 9. Subscribe to our show and you'll see why Locatora is your prima's favorite podcast. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Before I became a professional writer, I thought, oh, these writers, are, they're so lucky. They're so lucky that they get to do this. And then when I became one, I was like, it's all talent. Luck has nothing to do with it. I'm just that talented. <laughs> and now I realize I'm back to the luck part. I mean, it's, there's talent for sure. But there's so much luck involved. There's just things you can't control that we got on the show, that it went as long as it did, that we met these, made these connections and met these people. It just, it's, you know, things that are just out of our hands. And I feel, I feel so lucky. I feel so lucky. My name is Gene Stubnitsky, and I've been fired from every assistant job I've ever held. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another, I would call, glorious episode of Off the Beat. It's me, as always, your host, Brian Baumgartner. Do you like the show The Office? Have you ever heard of it? Well, if you do, my guest today is one of the many reasons why. Here with me is the brilliant and twisted Gene Stepnitsky. Gene wrote on the show for three seasons and... He is 50% responsible for some of the greatest and cringiest episodes, including Scott's Tots and Dinner Party. Now, why 50%? 
Well, his other half, I mean, his writing partner, Lee Eisenberg, the two of them, in addition to writing on The Office, also responsible for shows and films, including Bad Teacher, Trophy Wife, Good Boys, and the innovative and hilarious recent Emmy nominee, Jury Duty. Yeah. Yeah. Leave it to Gene and Lee to mastermind an elaborate prank, <laughs> like bringing someone to a fake jury duty, convincing them that it's real, pulling crazy shenanigans in the courtroom, then turning it into comedic yet heartfelt television gold. Brilliant and twisted, just like I said. But which one is brilliant and which one is twisted? Maybe we'll find out today. Gene is also responsible for the breakout hit No Hard Feelings with Jennifer Lawrence, which, by the way, is on its way to being the highest grossing R-rated comedy of the decade. He's a great friend. He's an hilarious dude. He's a fantastic writer. I am so thankful and feel so lucky that he agreed to hang out with me and you, well, to tell us how he became so incredible. Let's get started. The one and only Gene Stepnitsky. Bubble and squeak. I love it. Bubble and squeak, I know. Bubble and squeak, I cook it every morning. Left over from the night before. What's up, Gene? Brian, how are you doing? <laughs> I'm so good. It's been so long, my friend. It's been a while. It really has. So good oh to see you. God, it's so good to see you. You're in Massachusetts? I am. Are you summering in Massachusetts or are you striking in Massachusetts? I'm, um, I was striking and now I'm, I'm summering. You know how the, elite, the Hollywood elite do it? That's right. I yeah. mean, you, if, there, if there is one thing you are at this point, it's Hollywood elite. Yes, it's <laughs> it's Hollywood elite. It's not elite. It's high. It's a very it's a lower tier of elite. Well, that's that's true too. Uh, I'm so it's just so good to see your face, and uh, I can't wait to talk about uh, everything that's been going on now. But I, I want to go back in your life to when you were born. Oh boy, you were born in Kiev. Yeah, in Ukrainian. Soviet Union and moved to the United States very young, like nine months. So first off, what what brought your family? Obviously, you had no choice. What brought your family to the United States? Yeah, I didn't move. I was moved. <laughs> uh, uh, I think, you know, a better life. It's that old immigrant story. They, you know, there was, was not good for the Jews there. Uh, yeah. And it was just not good for anyone, really. And uh, we had some family members that had it's kind of weird there was like a split in the family where like some of the family moved to the u.s in like 1914 and then okay. some of the family moved in like so like my dad's one of my dad's brothers moved here like a year earlier or six months earlier uh, to chicago and then we kind of followed suit and so this was the late 70s and yeah kind of set up in, in the city and then moved out to the suburbs uh, yeah so my earliest memories are in chicago Right. But I, you know, we did go back recently, not recently, not that recently, 2010, kind of. So I got the tour of like, you know, where I was, where my parents lived, where I was born, probably where I was conceived. 
Uh, and then I think about it, uh, you know, when they went to school and uh, that, all that. And I'm just, you know, very uh, thankful that we left and they, they came here and gave me and my sister this better life. Although, you know, my sister was born here. Right. Do you, uh, how do you think that that affected your childhood? Being, an, being, having immigrant parents? I mean, it affect, you know, uh, there's this quote I always think about, uh, I don't know who, it was either, I've seen it attributed to Carl Jung and to Williams Wordsworth. I don't know who said it, but the child is the father of the man. So, you know, the five-year-old version of Brian has been around much longer than the current version of Brian. And right. the things that, you know, if you're five and you find a dead body on the street, that probably affects you more than, look, if I found, if I saw a dead body, I wouldn't love it, but I don't think it would actually change me in any significant way or any, any of these events, uh, that kind of really can form your personality. So being an immigrant, I definitely, you know, I didn't learn English till I was six. And I, I have this memory of, um, going to school mm-hmm. and just panicking, not understanding because we grew up in, you know, we were all speaking Russian. I grew up in like this Russian, it was my Russian grandparents or Ukrainian grandparents but we were speaking Russian culturally Russian. And suddenly we moved to the suburbs and I'm just dropped in this school and I don't understand anything and I'm scared. And that is one of my earlier, earliest memories. And I, you know, I know that I'm probably on some level, I never want to feel that way again. So there are probably things I did that I'm not even fully aware of to make right. sure I didn't feel that way. But also, you know, I was an immigrant. So on some level I was an outsider. So I was an observer. So I, and I think, you know, with Comedy writing, I think a lot of, you know, few comedy writers were probably like the uh, high school quarterback. Um, right. I know I wasn't, uh, <laughs> but uh, I, I was I was a cornerback. Um, no, I wasn't. We um, <laughs> had a big high school, a lot of great athletes. Yeah. So, you yeah. know. Do you, I mean, I, I have to ask now because of what's going on in the world, do you still have family in the Ukraine? And, and how does this now, what's going on now, affect you or, or what do you think about when you think about where you came from and what's happening over there? Yeah. Hey, um, I don't have family. Uh, my dad's childhood best friend lives in Kiev. Okay. L- like many wars, it's a pointless war. It's, it's really, I don't, I can't get my head around it. I don't understand why it's happening. I think a lot of people feel that way. There are a lot of geopolitical arguments of why Russia invaded. I don't really care about those. I just know that it's just, there's, in mass casualties and it makes me very, very sad. And it's the, you know, although it's halfway around the world, I do feel connected to it. And, you know, it is on some level, it is personal. Although I see myself as an American, I right. still, I, my heart goes out to these people who are being invaded and fighting in the, in this war for survival. Yeah. It's interesting. Um, hearing you talk that you grew up culturally Russian, you spoke Russian Though you're from this city and these people that are Ukrainian and got their independence after after you were gone, um, it's, it must just be very confusing. It's very confusing. So growing up, people, you know, what are you know, I would say I was Russian, uh, right? I was from, and because uh, in the Soviet Union it was all culturally Russian. There was no right Belarus. Or, I mean, there was Ukraine. There was Belarus, but it was all everyone spoke Russian, and then. So I grew up, you know, my parents spoke Russian. And then when I went back in 2010, I didn't understand Ukrainian at all. I had, it was truly a foreign language and my parents kind of got it, kind of understood it. It was, it was very strange because I think once, uh, Soviet Union, Union collapsed, uh, you know, countries kind of went back to their roots and became 
more nationalistic and, and, you know, Ukrainians spoke Ukrainian again and Russians not being taught in school, or maybe it was taught, I, I don't know. But uh, yeah, everything changed when, in 91 when the Soviet Union collapsed. So, but that was not, um, that was not the Ukraine that my parents were raised in. Right. Yeah. Uh, you brought up being an observer and potentially giving you, I mean, it seems clear to me, giving you potentially greater insight into what you do now, which is really studying the human condition, or at least that's what, what I think about it. I, you know, you observe human and you find uh, humans and you find comedy within that. You, you have said that some of your early influences were Bill Murray and Jim Carrey. Interesting, those two, because to me, they seem... I said that? That's what, that's what I was told. I don't think so. No? Uh, what about Bill, Bill Murray? Look, probably no human being has made me laugh more than Bill Murray right. over the Groundhog last... Groundhog Day, you've seen that that's more than any other movie. That's my favorite comedy. Okay. So Groundhog Day is my favorite comedy. Well, what, what was it about Bill Murray that, that drew you in? Probably Harold Ramis on some level. It okay. was those early Bill Murray movies. You know, and I didn't um, see them when they came out. I was, I was kind of too young for those early 80s ones. But, right. And like, you know, my immigrant dad wasn't showing them to me as he was to probably like a lot of kids. Um, right. But when I found them, I, there's something about Bill Murray that uh, the, the character of Bill Murray, not I don't know the person, but the character he played this kind of rebel, irreverent, didn't take anything too seriously that really appealed to me. You know, those early Harold Ramis movies were anti-institutional comedies, you know, against the country club in Caddyshack, right. against the university in, in uh, Animal House, against government bureaucracy in Ghostbusters. And I think those, there's something, you know, it's it's the guy going up against the system that, that appealed to me. And then later on, those kind of um, self-discovery comedies that he made, Groundhog Day, Multiplicity, that was more, you know, that was not Bill Murray, but Groundhog Day really, you know, it's like, oh, you can change, you can grow, you can learn, even in your 40s, you right. know, it's not too late right. to make a change. And I, I think that affected me. When did you start writing? And, and is that what you wanted to be, a writer? I wanted to be the NBA. And okay. that became very quickly apparent that that was just not going to happen. Right. No matter how many dribbling drills I did, it was just, <laughs> right. I think when I graduated high school, I was like five, seven, I, right. I had a growth spurt in college, but it just wasn't going to happen for me. Yeah. I point. wanted to be the first baseman for the Atlanta Braves. So no, I get you. And then at a certain point you changed, but was this something you were interested in early on? No, initially I wanted to be a, a film critic because okay. being from Chicago, I didn't know anyone that, you know, made movies or TV, but I knew Cisco and Ebert. I knew they were from Chicago. And I was like, right. okay. So I studied film criticism and film theory. And I was a critic at in my college newspaper and I thought, okay, that's what I do it. And then eventually I thought, well, why am I writing about it? Maybe I should just, just do it. Maybe, maybe that's the way to do it. And I wanted to be a director initially at first. And someone said to me, you know, no one's going to give you $40 million to make a movie, but if you can write, that will help. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> uh, so then I kind of, uh, but you know, I, I, without fully realizing I loved comedy and write, you know, I was SNL watching SNL, watching Seinfeld, you know, watching all, all the seminal comedies and it probably just soaking it up on, on some cellular level that I wasn't fully aware of. And then, yeah, I mean, the goal was just 
so go change from being a director to being just a comedy writer, just getting a job on a sitcom. Was, right. Came you went to the University of Iowa. Isn't there a big playwriting program there at the University of Iowa? Yes, there is a. Um, yeah. There's a writing, pro- creative writing program. That's, okay. I think, I think the best in the country. Uh, but I did not go to that. I went to the okay. undergraduate school. But I got okay. all the kind of like the, um, you know, like some of my teachers were like, like Dan Weiss, who co-created Game of Thrones. Yep. Uh, taught me. And, you know, I got, we, so we, were, we had access. If you were writing undergrad, you, you had access to these brilliant writers. What made you decide to move to L.A.? Well, once I decided I wanted to do it, it was obvious. There was no other move. I mean, I was very okay. scared to go. But, uh, you know, if I had any chance of, of doing it at that time, you had to kind of move to L.A. I don't know if, the, if that applies today the same way, right. but everything, all the business was there. So I was going to go. So for me, I took my time. You know, I did theater for a long time. I felt like I needed to have certain boxes checked before moving to Los Angeles. I mean, it seems like you were like, I just, I need to be there. Were there people that you knew or, or, or places that you wanted to, to either study or sign with? Did you have an agent when you went out or were you just like, F it, I'm going and I'm going to make this happen. Yeah. I'm just like, I'm going, I didn't know anyone. I knew one person from college kind of, and I knew, I knew uh, Dan, who was my teacher, who had not co-created Game of Thrones yet. It was right. just, and, uh, and I had interned, I got an, in, Harold Ramis was a Chicago guy, and I got an internship with him in, in the suburbs there. And then he was making Bedazzled, uh, this is 2000, when I moved out to okay. So I got an internship working Friday mornings and the Fox lot. I didn't really do much, but it ended up being, you know, the most significant thing to ever happen to me because that's where I met Lee Eisenberg, right. who was a PA on Bedazzled, an office PA, and our and I was working in Harold's kind of bungalow on the Fox lot, and our copier broke, and they're like, "Okay, go to the uh, Bedazzled production offices on the other side of the lot." And I went there, and they're and I was like, "I need to make copies," and they're like, "Lee, the copy boy will help you." <laughs> and so Lee became my first friend in, in LA. I did not know that. I didn't know that you both, before everything happened, both worked for Harold that early. How did you get in? I mean, was it because you came from Chicago that you got this internship? Did you Had you met him? So, no, I never met him. What happened okay. was uh, I had come, I feel like I was supposed to like go somewhere for spring break with my girlfriend. We broke up. I came home. For, I was like home for spring break. And there was a magazine that no longer exists called North Shore Magazine. Okay. My family that keeps 10-year-old magazines lying around. This is from like 96. The magazine is from 96, but I read it in 1999. And uh, it said, Harold Ramis returns. He was on the cover. And he was coming back to Chicago. And I read the article and like said he had an office in Highland Park, Illinois, which was near me. I said, oh, my God. So, so I, I called his office and talked to Laurel Ward, who was his assistant at the time, later became a producing partner of his. And she said, we need someone with a truck because... At that, that summer in um, Chicago, they made these like, uh, I don't know if they were like ceramic cows, kind of put them all over the city. And I like bring mm-hmm. some. And I was like, I have a truck. Yeah, of course I got a truck, which I didn't have. So then I had to like kind of scramble and find a truck to bring these cows from Chicago to, to his house. And that's, I think, probably what got me the internship is that I lied and said, if there's any lesson to take away, it's lie. <laughs> lie and figure it out later. Uh, and yeah, so I, I didn't know him. I had no family connection to him. 
but I, I got to know him a little bit. And then, so when I moved, so this, and I went back, I did one more, I was in college for four and a half years, did one more semester and then moved in January and someone in his orbits said, you can intern here. So I went and really what happened was that his, you know, I used to tell people that, you know, I was like a Harold's nanny because what happened was his wife, you know, like hang out with the kids and she's like, do you want to come with us on vacation? And uh, they had like a real nanny. I was like the fake nanny. I, I didn't do anything. I was a terrible nanny. And, but I stopped. I didn't let the kids die. I mean, that was my big, right. my big thing. Well, and they probably had fun with you too, right? Was it more like summer camp? Like, come on. They had fun. They had fun. Like, you know, we, we like played sports. We hung out. and But I was also like a petty too. So they'd be like, Daniel, who actually worked on No Hard Feelings as an AP uh, as associate producer to come full circle. But I was looking after him when he was like six. He was a little smart ass. And he, I remember one time he said something just really just a little, made a sassy comment and then went to the water and then took a sip of the water fountain. I just shoved his head in the water fountain and he, he was like, I'm going to tell my dad, my mom, what you did. I was like, oh God, I'm being sent home. <laughs> I, I, so it was great. It was, it was fun. But I got to spend a lot of time with Harold, got to know him. And it was just like, you know, he had such a huge effect on my life in, in so many ways. And I'm just really, uh, I feel very lucky that I knew him for those years that, that I did. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President, Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here, we have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Hey, my name's Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of On Purpose. I just had a great conversation with Michael B. Jordan, and you can listen to it right now. Michael is known for his performances in both film and television. His breakout role was in Fruitvale Station, 
playing Oscar Grant, which earned him widespread praise and numerous award nominations. His portrayal of Killmonger in Marvel's Black Panther, one of my favorites, further solidified his status as one of Hollywood's leading actors, earning him widespread acclaim for his complex and compelling performance. In our conversation, Michael really opens up. You're going to love listening to it, and I can't wait for you to check it out. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. It's always the feeling when you're getting ready to, you know, people give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. People quit. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. You started writing jokes yes. for stand-up comedians. Is this something that you're told to do to start honing your comedic timing? Or is this, how did that come about? You know, it's very old-timey. Um, okay, that's what it seems to me like. Yeah. It's not, yeah, it's not like, I'm sure there, you, maybe in the 50s that was like a thing. I, uh, basically, yeah, there's there some, uh, Lee was working somewhere. I was unemployed a lot. I just was a terrible, I was always getting fired. Was a terrible assistant. So, but like Lee had, was working somewhere. I met a comedian. It was like, oh, the guy buys jokes. I was like, oh, I can do it. I'd never really written a joke, but I started writing for him. And then I started writing for someone else. It was never lucrative or enough to pay my rent or anything, but it was, it, it forced me to kind of sit down and think about jokes and joke structure and practice and practice. And uh, yeah, so that was, that was the first thing I ever got paid for. Is, right. I think it was like, Fifty dollars a joke or something. Yeah. So you bring up Lee again. So you meet him. He's making copies for you on Bedazzled. Not so much for me, but well, with-, with you, yes. The two of you are making copies together. You become friends. Now, how soon do you decide this that I want him to be my partner? That did you have the same comedic sensibility? Did you share the same interests? Did you just were you just friends? Like how, how did how did that come to be? Yeah. We were friends before we became partners. That old story. Right. Yeah. We were just friends. We had the same, Lee wanted to be a drama writer. Okay. And, um, was writing drama spec scripts. It makes uh, sense. Cause he's not funny. He's not yeah. funny at all. No, he's probably the least funny person I ever met. Um, <laughs> which it's so funny now to think about it, that he was writing dramas, but he's also, you know, he's doing it again, but he's obviously a hilarious person. He's a great comedy writer. So, but it, it, yeah, that at the time he was, he was writing drama and, um, we were just friends. He was my first friend and we, that was 2000, like in 2003, we moved in together and he was temping at HBO and I was, uh, temping at, uh, Nick Jr. Not even the real Nickelodeon. Okay. Nick Jr. Younger Nickelodeon. I don't think yeah. so exists. And, uh, <laughs> by the way, that seems like the absolute worst placement for you. Yeah. I mean, no offense, but like <laughs> if there were two people, you being one of them, who like writes the most cringiest of comedies <laughs> in the history, like that you're writing for the, not just kids, but like the three to five year old kids anyway. Yeah. I don't have nothing to say to these. I have nothing to say to these people. No, I wasn't <laughs> writing for them. I was like, no, I know. Coffee. Yeah. But you I, were just working there. Yeah. yeah okay. the mark, I think it was like marketing or something. Yeah. But um, we ended up writing some stuff for Caribbean enthusiasm. We had heard they were looking for ideas and we ended up, selling some ideas. And, and after that, we were just like, Oh, you know, we have a good, we kind of have the same sen- comedic sensibility. 
and we ended up writing a spec comedy script that was sold to Fox. And then we kind of kind of started writing together and that led to every, those, you know, we wrote the spec. It was really about us in some level. Was it a spec or was it a pilot? Sorry. We sold the pilot. We wrote the spec. We sold the yeah. pitch, we sold the spec. Didn't get made, but those 30 pages ended up being, you know, really the most important th- things we'd, we would ever write because it got us on The Office. It got us writing for Harold Ramis on a movie. It got us, it really opened all the doors for us. The pilot you mentioned got the attention of Greg Daniels. You have a meeting with him. What are your thoughts going in to the meeting with Greg uh, about coming on The Office? I was told, we were told Greg does a long meeting. So don't read into that. It's not good or bad. He just, in my mind, I only knew, you know, I knew his name and I knew he did King of the Hill. And I was in my mind, I was expecting someone to come walk in with a cowboy hat, and cowboy boots. And <laughs> here comes this kind of man with glasses and a little, little bag and uh, very quiet and thoughtful. And we sat across him and talked to him for two hours, a lot of long pauses. Yes. We did not fill them. Yes. Yeah. I just had a meeting that we could not tell. I couldn't tell you how it went. We had no, you know, his poker face. We didn't know, we're like, does he hate us? Does he like us? Does he, you know, I think what he was really thinking was like, I can get two for one with these guys. It's a writing team, <laughs> two for the price of one. You know, he's probably coming at it from that place. But yeah, eventually we got a call. We got, I think we got three offers. We got an uh, offer for uh, an animated show that was 22 episodes. We got an offer for 13 for another show episodes. And then we got an offer of a script on the American office. Cause at that time, I don't know if you remember, like you didn't know if you're going to get a season two, you got six, it was like six scripts. Right. All we were guaranteed were scripts. And we, although we didn't have any money, we're just like, we'd rather work on the office and take our chances and nothing happening than the guaranteed money of the 22 episodes or the 13 episodes. So we did. Was that because of Greg? Or was that because it That's was we had seen the season one? We had seen those six episodes. And yeah. we were like, this is brilliant. We were just huge. I mean, we were huge fans of the British show. And then we're like, when they announced the American one, we're like, okay, this is gonna, how are they gonna fuck this up? And we saw it and we were just it was riveting. We just couldn't believe how good it was. It's all we wanted to do. I mean, we literally got to live our dream. Like that's all we wanted was to work on the office just from those six episodes. Yeah. So it was the greatest thing that happened to us ever, you know, it was just amazing. You were pretty young. At this point, mm-hmm. you come in. I was eleven. You were you were eleven. Child. By the way, here's the thing. Spoiler alert: I was really young too. When I do you know what? You show. know what's funny? When I see the show now, I'm like, how old was Carell in this? Is he older or younger than? I'm always trying to do the math of like, how old was Steve in this? How old was Rain? Right. How old was Brian? Like, I'm always just like, oh my god, I'm older than Carell was in season <laughs> one. What? You know? I know. You come in. Pretty young. I mean, certainly there were quite a few young people on the staff the back staff, then. Yeah. Mindy and BJ. Look, look, I have to. I have to. Unlike so, one of the things that separated Lee and I from everyone. Everyone like a lot of those. A lot of the staff went to Harvard. Mm-hmm. They were all kind of like it was almost ex- their birthright to to write sitcoms. Okay. You know, I was from Chicago. He was from Boston, and I had just five years of just nothing. I was like I said, like just getting fired a lot. I was. Just, terrible at everything. So not a good assistant, not a good PA, (laughs) just a huge fuck up, really just a history of failure in many ways. So there was no, like, we didn't expect anything. We weren't, didn't feel like we should be there, but yes, we got, I think 
we were, I was like maybe 26 or 27. Yeah. Started. What do you think you and Lee, both of you, what do you think your greatest contribution to the show was, or how do you feel like you helped? Oh, wow. What are you most proud of? Yeah. You know, there are certain jokes that I'm really proud of that I remember writing that feeling you get when you just, you're like, this is, this is, this feels like it could be really good. So I had those moments in my mind of just remember writing certain jokes and they, they weren't, weren't even always for my episodes, but like, they're just jokes that I, I'm pr- proud of. It feels so weird. This is when the Im- imposter syndrome really kicks in when you start talking about <laughs> stuff like this. But I think maybe we kind of subverted. I think we like, you know, we did things like when Jim kind of became like not the greatest partner ever. He's like, oh, I got to go. I got to leave. I got to go. The house is on fire or flood. And you know, trying to leave camp. Like it would really piss off a certain segment of the audience. But just things like that. Right. I don't know. We I think we probably wrote, kind of everyone had their own like, I feel like Mike Sher wrote like Michael at his almost most noble in a way, like the best version of Michael version. Personally, I like a lot and like everyone had like a different version, but I think we probably wrote like the most, the most, I guess, British version of the show in a way. Okay. Maybe some of the darker stuff. Well, that, that was sort of where I was going. I mean, the two episodes that you guys were responsible for Scott's tots and dinner party unquestionably considered the most cringiest of episodes in the history of the show were those your ideas or did you execute them and what i mean by that for those of you listening who don't know sometimes there are stories that are decided collectively in the writer's room and then you're assigned a script to write i'm i'm curious about sort of the genesis for either one or both of those episodes yeah so yeah it's true some like writers will come in with ideas after we'll have like time off in between seasons, we come in with new ideas. And the ideas you come in come in with aren't always the ones that you end up writing. Sometimes the other writers write right. them and you write other writers' ideas. Um, neither one was our idea. Uh, okay. uh, dinner party <laughs> might have been Greg's idea. I don't actually remember okay. whose idea that was. But I remember feeling very – I knew how to write that episode. And I remember Greg assigned it to Mindy who like wasn't that ex- – like, I don't. I didn't think she, really, she wanted to write a different episode. I think at the time it was called like uh, "Who's Afraid of Jan Levinson Gould?" Yeah, but uh, Scott's Tots was a Paul Lieberstein original that we were assigned. Okay, yeah. Um, you make your acting debut in The Office, correct? On television? Uh, on television, yes. Yes, on on television. Yes, Leo and Gino, yeah, the delivery guys. Was this something you were excited about doing? No, or was this just fun for the writers? I did not enjoy it at all, and it was really the other writers <laughs> kind of. I think Greg thought it was funny and. The other writers like thought it'd be funny to force us to act. I hated it. Didn't want to do it. Fought against it. But if we were going to do it, we did. Lee and I did think it was funny for him to play Gino and me to play Leo, which was just really confused yeah. some of the people working on the show. Didn't <laughs> yeah. know what our names was. What our names were anyway at the beginning, <laughs> and then by the end we're really confused. And sometimes people, if I felt someone didn't so like, if I knew someone wasn't sure if I was Lee or Gene, and Lee would walk by, I'd be like, "Hey, Gene," to Lee. I would call him Gene, which would just doubly <laughs> confuse them. And they think they finally have to have it figured out. And then I would just yeah, continue con- confusing. Them. That's so good. I mean, look, the show, the show gave all of us so much. I mean, for you, your first job in a writer's room, your acting career on television, whether you liked it or not, your directorial debut. When you look back on that time, what feelings do you have? 
I mean, I owe so much. It was my film school, you know. I owe so much to the show. It because you know, easily you can easily get on a show that lasts six episodes, and then you get on another show, and it kind of you know gets canceled or it's irrelevant. I mean, we got so lucky being hired on the show to be on a show that went as long as it did, and I, we didn't stay the whole time, but it changed our lives. Met a lot of amazing people. We learned so much. Uh, we learned how to become showrunners and how to write and how to run a room. And kind of one of the things in the writer strike that, that there, we talk about is just, and I know uh, Mike's gone on record talking about this, just true is like, you know, for the next generation, you know, we learned from Greg how to, how to do these things. And a lot, a lot of people aren't, aren't learning that anymore. Um, mm. But we, it just it ch- completely changed our lives, c- changed the trajectory of our careers. I remember thinking before I became a professional writer, I thought, oh, these writers, are, they're so lucky. They're so lucky that they get to do this. And then when I became one, and I was like, it's all talent. Luck has nothing to do with it. I'm just that talented. And now I realize I back to the luck part. I mean, it's, there's talent for sure. But there's so much luck involved. There's just things you can't control that we got on the show, that it went as long as it did, that we met these, made these connections and met these people. It just, it's, you know, things are just out of our hands. And I feel, I feel so lucky. I feel so lucky. I remember talking to, to both Lee and to you at the time. My impression was you were in a really difficult but amazing situation because I recall you saying, like, this was all we wanted to do was to be writers on the office and to continue to work. But you begin to get, because you are so talented, despite your jokes, a bunch of other opportunities, and it's you decide it's time to go. That's a difficult decision for you. Well, at the time... I remember our last year, we, we and I were like, we're just going to coast through this. We're just going to coast. You know, we're, we're making, we wrote a movie that's going to production and we're going to just kind of take it easy. And then they asked us to be the head writers and we're like, does that come with more money? They're like, no. They're like, does that come with a title bump? They're like, no. Like, okay, cool. And so, yeah. So by the end of, the, I think it was season six or so last season, we were on fumes. It, so in a sense, it wasn't that hard because we were, I've never been more exhausted. I mean, we right. were just kind of at the end, at the end there, we were so tired all the time. So we just needed a break. We were so burnt out, you know, for those five years, we would work Monday through Friday on the office and Saturday and Sunday, we were writing movies. Right. So we were working seven days a week for five years. That's it. We just wanted a better quality of life. Yeah. And we were so tired, but it was not easy. It was scary. Right. Sure. Well, right out of the gate, you go, you leave to go work on year one with both Lee and the aforementioned Harold Ramis. Was that a dream come true for you? Yes. So year one was actually, we got hired on year one, I think like two weeks after getting hired in the office back okay. in 2005. So you're working on it the whole time. Yes. We're like working on it yeah. after work, on the weekends. So, you know, Harold had started writing it already. And so we we would help out when we could, and then by the end I think we were doing bad teacher. Yeah, we were leaving in 2011. Yeah, yeah, it was pretty exhausting. Well, in 2013, you get on a list, the overachievers list. <laughs> this is Deadline Hollywood's pilot season overachievers list. That year, you and Lee were behind ABC's Pulling, ABC's Trophy Wife. And CBS's bad teacher adaptation of the movie, and your comedy pilot with Stephen Merchant, Hello Ladies, on HBO got picked up. You got to be feeling really good about yourself at this time. 
Yeah. Feeling good, also feeling very scared about the amount of work. Right. So Bad Teacher, we didn't really have anything to do with other than doing the movie and we were executive. The great thing about Hollywood is you can be an executive producer and actually do nothing. <laughs> yes. It's pretty amazing. It's a great gig. <laughs> and Pulling was a pilot, but he didn't get picked up the series. So we were doing Trophy Wife and Hello Ladies simultaneously. Yeah. It's like bouncing back and forth. What was it like working with Steven? Who obviously you you hadn't Stephen didn't do a whole lot on the office, but obviously going back and working with him on you know someone that you had admired from the original British version. Yeah, I mean he was someone that we were a fan of, and then got to become friends with. It was okay. really cool, and we became friends. And he asked us to produce Hello Ladies, and then we're like, okay. And then we start talking about, it, and then he's like, why don't you guys just uh, write it with me, create it with me, and we did. But it was so fun. He he lived with me for like eight months. It was great. It was so fun. I mean, he is one of the funniest people ever. And what one of the great things about doing this job is you're like, I've been surrounded by some of the funniest people in the world. I always think like my friends, I have the funniest friends and he's, you know, he's one of them. And, and you know, there's, there's so many people, BJ, and I know so many funny people and I, I love it. It makes life so much better. I'm going to ask you an impossible to answer question i know i'm curious how do you decide whether you are going to work with lee on a particular project or if it's something that you are going to go out and do on your own there's Is there no a process uh, and and how, how have you managed to negotiate bad feelings on either side of that yeah there's no bad feelings there's no like rhyme or reason it's just like you know we i think some things we're kind of doing different things. Sometimes we do the same thing. So there's a, it's a, imagine a Venn diagram and there's some things that we both want to do like jury duty or, you know, um, he's doing his, his uh, drama stuff and, you know, I'm doing directing. So it just depends what it's really a project by project okay. uh, thing. Are you discussing it with each other or not? Sometimes. Okay. Sometimes. I know it's an impossible question, but it is fascinating because you guys have had so much success together Though you're not exclusively together. Yeah, we, we date other people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you date around. Yeah, we date around. Speaking of which, something that you date solo, I don't know, that was a terrible transition. Good <laughs> good boys, uh, your feature film directorial debut. That was with Lee. With Lee, writing, but you directed. Well, no, we both directed it. You both directed it. We both directed it, but the... Directors Guild would not give us a waiver in their infinite wisdom, would not give us a waiver. So, oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, it's been a so, like on The Office, you know, we I directed an episode, he directed one, but we both directed both of them. Right. They just would not give us a waiver to make us a directing team. So, we went to put our name on it. Uh, I never mind. Yeah. And he's, you know, he ended up, he was the producer, I was a director, but we both did the same. You know, we both wrote it and then we both did the same producing and directing. What was it like working with? actual kids i mean we were sort of childlike on the office but actual 12 year old actors and was it difficult for you to finesse the subject matter obviously r rated comedy with the kids are they understanding what is going on yeah you know i mean look the parents read the script there are no right. surprises here right you know you know what you're getting into right Sometimes the kid would, you know, the kids would ask me, and I'd be like, oh, you know, I don't know. Maybe go ask your mom. Uh, right. You know, I would do <laughs> and like, I, I, 
I love the kids. The kids were so great and so funny. And, you know, at that age where just they want to know everything. Right. And so if like Lee and I were whispering, sometimes they'd walk near us. I'm like, oh, get out of here. So for example, there's a scene when they're, when they find porn on the computer, like I set it up. So like, you know, those things where you're like, you're watching a video and then like something jumps out and scares you. Yeah. So it'd be like that. It'd be like a, uh, like a zombie j- jump out of the screen right at you and scream, right. you know, things like that. <laughs> so, you know, they didn't really know that much and I tried to keep as much as possible away from them. Right. But, uh, that, how, I loved working with them because you can actually give them line readings. Like say it like this, right? Say it like, and you know, that sounds like what you would like. God. Oh my God. Are you kidding? I think every director re- actually, if you if they were being honest, they would say, yeah, every writer director actually wants to give line readings. Yeah. But here's the thing you need to understand. You, if you write something brilliant, it can only get better. No, allowing someone no. else to interpret it. It can get worse too. Well, it can it also get, worse. get worse. Yeah. Depends all on right. So I will say on the office, we were lucky that yes, it did get better on the office. It was virtually always better on the office. However, you don't always get to work with the actors of the office. Sometimes right. you work with other actors and it's, it's different. Cringiest moment for you working with the kids, oh, with the God. subject matter. There's in the reshoots they're like, you know, you do alt jokes, right? As we all know, we have alts. And I had to do, um, oh God, alts for one of the, one of the, not one of the main kids, but just a different child. And, uh, <laughs> which is like re- having to tell her them and she would just do one after another. And like the whole crew was just staring at me like, you piece of shit. You're making her say things that she clearly doesn't know what she's saying. And I, was, I feel terrible. And I was like, oh God. And I'm just like, at a certain point, I'm like, you know what? I'm just not going to do any more of these. This is not, I feel weird. Um, <laughs> But, you know, hey, that's entertainment. Yeah. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with a king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Hey, my name's Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of On Purpose. I just had a great conversation with Michael B. Jordan, and you can listen to it right now. Michael is known for his performances in both film and television. His breakout role was in Fruitvale Station, playing Oscar Grant, which earned him widespread praise and numerous award nominations. His portrayal of Killmonger in Marvel's Black Panther, one of my favorites, further solidified his status as one of Hollywood's leading actors, earning him widespread acclaim for his complex and compelling performance. In our conversation, Michael really opens up. You're going to love listening to it, and I can't wait for you to check it out. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. 
It's always the feeling when you're getting ready to, you know, people give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. People quit. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here, we have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia. And I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Got to talk about jury duty. I mean, it is so fascinating. Whose idea was it? It was an amalgam of, okay. you know, we, so in like 2000, I want to say 14, we wrote a script. We never wrote a script called Jury Duty okay. for HBO. I think we wrote for Will Ferrell. Did not go anywhere. He didn't do it. They didn't pick it up. You know, nothing really happened from it. So we just kind of had this failed pilot. And then two producers... Dave Bernad, a friend of ours, and Todd Shulman came to us, said they want to do a prank show, I believe, about a, a lawyer. And we're like, well, we have this jury idea. And we kind of combined ideas, and that's kind of how the show was born. But it's a, it, it is sort of a prank show, but he's not the butt of any jokes. That's what's so beautiful yeah. about it to yeah, me. Yeah, it's the first, they say, the first feel-good prank show. That was always the idea, that it wouldn't be mean-spirited, that he would, it would be, you know, he he was never made to be the butt of the joke, which by the way is really hard because then that makes him in a way, our fear was that he wouldn't be active, you know, right. he would just be outside the action watching. And it kind of worked out. It, it somehow just pure luck. I mean, part of it is just, you know, you get the right guy. Right. I, I'm wanting to talk to him for the podcast here about it because it seems like you just chose the right guy. I didn't choose him. Well, but you, but yes, you collectively. Chosen. So we actually di- did the show with three different people. Uh, we shot it three times or two and a half times and shows, you know, he was the one that we did it with, but uh, yeah, we didn't know. And, you know, we were talking how like, we didn't know if we would even have a show to give them. He might figure it out halfway through. And then there's no show. He just wasted a lot of money. You know, just Amazon is a rounding error, but still they may not have anything. So, and also, right. I think in the middle of the development process, first we, we sold it to, to Amazon. We're like, okay, it's going to be on Amazon. They're like, it's going to be on IMDb TV. We're like, well, what is that? They're like, it's IMDb. We just bought IMDb TV. It's a thing. Show's going to be on. We're like, okay. Then a little bit later, like, okay. So IMDb TV is gone. It's now called Freebie. You're going to be on Freebie. Like, what is a Freebie? Uh, it's like, no one is going to see this thing. It's a disaster. Yeah. Uh-huh. It is all like just the stars. Sometimes the stars align. Sometimes the stars align. I started hearing about this show it's one of the it was one of those shows that it just 
kept growing. It just kept growing. And I kept hearing about it. And, you know, part of my cynical brain heard reality or whatever. And I just sort of, and then I heard about it again. And then some people I respect. And then I found out that you guys were doing it. And I was like, all right, well, I got to sit my ass down and give it a watch. What you just said that you shot it three times. What do the other two people think who weren't chosen? That's a good that's, question. That's what I want to know. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I actually don't know. I don't okay. know. You know, you know it, took, it took a lot of people to pull this off. We just had a small part of this. We, there was like a lot of people doing this and making it work that are not named Lee and Jean. Yeah. But yeah, I, I, I don't know. I don't know what they, because it's you know, the same, they recognize their fellow jurors as the people they served with. Because, right. you know, they were told it was for a, a documentary about the American judicial system. This is just a small part of it. Yes. So they didn't, you know, they didn't think they would be the, they didn't understand, you know, what, what we were actually doing. Here's the thing. Here's the thing that I don't understand. Okay. So you, you talked about waste a lot of money. What happens at the end if Ronald says you don't have permission to, sh to show this? What happens? It well, dies? You know. Yeah, but there are things you can do to make sure someone says yes. I give them a lot of money. <laughs> right. Lot of money. I noticed that in the last episode. Yes, yeah, spoiler alert. He does get, yeah, he does get paid. But still, like, there's a there's a risk there, right? I mean. Yeah, look, there's always a chance. There's always a chance. But, you know, you kind of pre-screen. You know, okay. there's paperwork that's signed. And you kind of pre-screen for, what's that? what is that psychological trait? Agreeability? Okay. You, know, you screen for it. They always talk about like uh, sociopaths and serial killers have a very low level of agreeability. Right. right? And so but you want people with a high level of agreeability to be on jury duty because they can kind of go with the flow. They see some weird behavior that's funny, but they kind of accept it and they try to make the best of it, including being told that everything is fake and they were in the Truman Show and still signing off. And, and you know, it, it could, yes, it could have been a disaster. Absolutely. Right. Well, I mean, it's helpful also that he comes off incredibly well. It is not the butt of the joke. It's just similar to reality television. Obviously, there's not multiple takes, right? You kind of get one shot at it, right? Yes and no. Okay. So dirty little secret is, you know, we shot this three times. So, you know, we are also taking our actors' reactions from other uh Jurors, mm. fake, uh, real jurors, the other Ronalds who aren't in the show, and using that. And not a lot necessarily, but it happens. Right. But yeah, you only get Ronald's reaction once or less once. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. It's, it's a trip. It's a whole other way of doing doing things. Can you do it again? Not, a, not, a, not in the, as a, not a jury. Not as jury duty. You cannot do it as jury duty, but you can, you can probably do it again as a different social experiment. Right. Because it became so, it became so successful that you can't do it again. I mean, you can try making a court. I would never want to. I feel like right. we did that. Right. Let's do, let's try something else or let's not try something else, but I don't, you couldn't do it in a courtroom again. I don't think. What for you, what is the most fortuitous plot point that Ronald made happen on his own? Um, the, I think the, the racism uh, thing, because yeah. that was in the script that we wrote. Yeah, like you know, and like the geniuses who were day to day on that show got him. Basically, he had seen a Family Guy, a Family Guy episode, and got him to 
say that and kind of we're just all like, oh my God, I can't believe this worked out. And because we had a whole bit about him saying he was racist, racist and then saying he wasn't racist. And it just, it was like, it, I can't believe it worked out. I just can't yeah. Well, congratulations. I thought it was, I thought it was beautiful. I thought it was, it was feel good, but also very funny and super cool. So, I mean, a, a, something that has never been done before a prank show extended for such a long period of time. And how long were they, were they isolated? Well, well I, I have to give credit to Joe Schmo, the Joe Schmo. Did you watch the Joe Schmo show? Joe yes. Schmo. Yeah. Hard to say. This I love the Joe Schmo show. <laughs> I cannot say it. I love that show. I think it's so funny. The guys who did Deadpool created it, and as they say, Joe Schmo walked so jury duty could run. They were they were doing that like in like two thousand one, a version of this. It's different. It's different. There's, there's some overlaps, some similarities. How long was he confined? Confined sounds like he's in prison. I know. I know. <laughs> three weeks? Yeah, three weeks. Yeah. Were the actors there too? Or did they leave? And go no, home? no, they were there. I think Marsden left. Marsden went home. Right. But I think the other actor, I think they stayed there. You know, you know, you go to bed at night, come back in the morning. Right. Awesome. Well, your other major project out now, no hard feelings with Jennifer Lawrence. How did you know that Jennifer Lawrence was right for the part? Well, I didn't really. I mean, I knew she was funny. Okay. I knew I knew she was witty. I knew she had this whole skill set that we hadn't really seen. But I didn't know. So it was written for her. John Phillips, my co-writer on the movie, uh, and I wrote it for her. But we didn't know if she would do it. I mean, you know, if she wants to do it, she's right for the part. Any part, she's <laughs> going to do it. You know? As a director, you're just like, oh, I should be so lucky. And hopefully she's, she wants to do it. Right. The movie based off of a real Craigslist ad um, that you were sent by the film's producers. I understand. So, so just to bring it full circle, it was found by Naomi Odenkirk. Oh. Mark, yeah. Who's, I think, Jenna's manager. Jenna's manager, yes. And Mark Provisero, who was the agent who got me and Leon the office. Wow. In the first place. And in fact, I, I was talking about with him recently uh, how after about three weeks on the show, we called him and we're like, can you get us off the show? He's like, what? He's like, we don't like it here. Everyone's mean and weird. And uh, the, I'm talking about the writers, not the actors. Right. And uh, we just don't feel like we, you know, we belong here. And in a very nice way, he's like, shut the fuck up. You don't understand what you're, what you, how lucky you are. And just, I'm going to pretend, I'm going to pretend I'm going to listen to you and then not do anything, which in his infinite wisdom was the right choice. You know, cause we got there and like, you know, like, oh, some of these people aren't that welcoming of our, of our genius. Don't they see how brilliant we are? And so, you know, it's like all the people that I love now, I was just like, Oh, I don't, I don't like any of these people. And now right. close friends of mine, but at the time I was like, this is, I don't want to be here. And he was like, yeah, I don't either. Uh, but he said, anyway, so yes. Yeah, so I was in LA, in LA for the premiere of good boys that week. And I had dinner with Mark and he told me about this idea that Naomi had found and he sent it to me. And I thought, okay, this could be like, who's the woman that answers this ad? Like what's going on in her life? Who are the parents that put this out? What's, what is this? And I thought this could be really good for Jennifer Lawrence and hopefully she'll do it. You know, she's working with obviously major filmmakers, but um, she saw good boys and she was a fan of that. And, um, and so I, I I pitched her this and she's like, well, yes, it looks funny. Um, I'm going to have to read a script. 
I was like, yeah, of course, of course you will, Jennifer Lawrence. <laughs> and so two years later, came back to her with a script. And uh, yeah, we did it. The movie now on its way to being the highest grossing original R-rated comedy of this decade. Um, what is it about R-rated comedies? Why, one, do you keep coming back to it? And two, why do you feel like there has been, you know, there was sort of a resurgence, right, around the early 2000s, 2000, 2006-ish, and they've kind of fallen away. Seems like studios feel like they're not going to make money or something. What 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 do you feel like, um, like well, what keeps bringing you back? Um, Your sensibility? Yeah, I think my sensibility. You know, I just comedy is my first love. I don't know if that I'll always do comedy, but I think okay. everything I do will have some comedy in it. I can't imagine working on something that had no comedy, you know, a lot of, strangely, a lot of very successful comedic filmmakers leave comedy, you know, the Adam McKay's, the mm-hmm. Todd Phillips, the Jay Roaches, they go off, they all, you know, move on to dramas. And, and I, I understand that impulse, you know, part of me wants to do that as well. But yeah, studios, I think, are a little bit gun-shy making them. Uh, they don't do super well internationally. You know, comedy is oftentimes, in some ways, regional, provincial. You know, what's funny in France is not funny in Germany right? and, and all that. Um, Unless it's Mr. Bean. And that's just funny everywhere. Yeah. That's just funny everywhere. Funny everywhere. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, they make way fewer comedies. I, I I think it's cyclical. I think it'll come back. But also a lot of genres kind of, you know, superhero movies now have comedy in them. There's horror comedies. So I feel like comedy has kind of been bisected and dissected and kind of put in these other genres. Mm-hmm. So the straight R-rated straight comedy is becoming a, um, a a rare thing. Yeah. Well, congratulations to you on its success. Congratulations on jury duty. I mean, you're... You know, some people say they're television people and some are film people. You just you just dominate across all platforms. Well, I think we can say after this, I'm also a podcast person. I mean, you, Would dominate, you, agree? you dominate here for sure. <laughs> I dominated you in this you, podcast. <laughs> you, domi- you dominated me. Uh, congratulations, man. I'm, oh, I'm so happy for you. I was so, yeah, I mean, again, that, that jury duty, it was just, I don't know if this happens to you anymore or if you just read too much about who's doing what but it was it was so fun for me to have this show that everybody literally is talking about jury duty and then to hear it was you guys i was just i was just so happy for you and then i watched it and i mean i can't even joke i I thought it was fantastic so congratulations and uh what's what's next we're striking for a little while longer and then we figure it out right yeah i uh i guess podcasts brian Podcasts, right. I think, are in my future. Should, right. Can we do one together? Can we? I have a lot of thoughts on a lot of things. Do yeah, I could be the new Lee in the podcast world. <laughs> do we have yeah, to I run mean, it by him though? No? I mean, yeah. Oh, well, we, we could, we could, we can give him. A, he can be an associate producer. Yeah, but right. yeah, I think just uh, yeah, you know, we're on strike for a while, and uh, yeah, I don't know what the future holds. It's a, it's a strange time. I don't either. I mean, again, you said it once. I'll say it again to bring it full circle. The last time we were sitting here, 2008, the strike interrupted shooting the aforementioned episode, Dinner Party. We started on it for one day, half a day, and stopped. And um, 
and a hundred a hundred days later, we went back to it. Yeah, it's it's so, yeah, that's true. We were picketing our own episode. It was weird because we were so excited. That table read was like, I think that the table read of dinner party was the best thing I've ever experienced in Hollywood. Was the euphoria? It was the same. I was so happy. Uh, that almost lasted a full day. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> and I, I was so happy and like. I was just on top of the world. I've never felt that good. Uh, and then the strike happened and we found ourselves picketing our own episode. It was so bizarre. Yeah. But sometimes it has to happen. And sometimes it has to happen. We're back there now. Well, here's to being back soon with, uh, with some uh, positive, much needed uh, results. So uh, yes. cheers, my friend. Great to see you. Thank you. You too, buddy. Dean, great talking to you today, my friend. Thank you so much. I look forward to seeing what you do next and what you and Lee do next. <laughs> Who knows? Me and Gene's new podcast, the, the Gino and Brian O show, premiering on iHeartRadio soon, I'm sure. Listeners, if you haven't already watched, do it. Jury duty and no hard feelings. I think people in the comedy world are going to be talking about both of these for a very, very long time. And trust me on this, you're going to want to be in on that conversation. So go check them out. Thank you for listening today. Uh, Until next time, have a great week and we will see you soon. Off the Beat is hosted and executive produced by me, Brian Baumgartner, alongside our executive producer, Ling Lee. Our senior producer is Diego Tapia. Our producers are Liz Hayes, Hannah Harris, and Emily Carr. Our talent producer is Ryan Papa Zachary, and our intern is Thomas Olson. Our theme song, Bubble and Squeak, performed by the one and only Creed Bratton. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying a, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, Love at, at first, first listen. listen. We're older, we're wiser, and we're podcasting through a new decade of our lives. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. And getting to the heart of our stories. We're going places we've never gone before, and we're bringing you along with us. With new segments, correspondence, and a brand new sound. Season 9 is kicking off with an intimate interview with Grammy Award-winning singer-songwriter Natalia Laforcade. What's giving you hope right now? Well, when I see See what music does to people. It gives me a lot of hope. If you liked Locatora before, you're going to love Season 9. Subscribe to our show and you'll see why Locatora is your prima's favorite podcast. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. 
Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. That's right. 